Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. But today, we're actually going to go a little linear, but still always connected. Before we begin our investigation today, I have a spyglass here with shoutouts for our newest Patreon supporters at Done and Done, Melissa N. and Tammy F. Holy cats, y'all are amazing. For all of our Done and Done community on Patreon, stay tuned this week for a new bonus episode, as well as information about our upcoming Joan Didion book club later on in the summer. So much thanks to all of y'all and to you for coming back to listen. I know that we are continuing through our Marilyn Monroe arc, but here again, there's some stories about our players that round out our Dominic Dunn universe. We're going to see some of them again in this story. We're introducing a few in this story that we will come back to a little bit later on as well. Our man Nick will write about Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis upon her death, but her life is so fascinating. Even more fascinating is how Jacqueline Bouvier will align into the Kennedy family throughout this arc. Much of this story I have sourced from Edward Klein's wonderful book called All Too Human, The Love Story of Jack and Jackie Kennedy. It is a wonderful resource if you are looking for further juicy details about this particular story. These next two episodes will cover that love story of Jacqueline Bouvier and Jack Kennedy, covering their backgrounds, their courtship, their engagement, and their wedding. Let's investigate. Before we can get our lovers together, it's time for a little backstory on our bride. Again, connecting to so many players and places in our universe, let's meet Jacqueline Lee Bouvier, born July 28, 1929. July of 1929, folks, still in the good times, but it's not going to stay that way for long. Our sweet Leo girl is born just a few mere months before the stock market crash in October. Jacqueline's parents have married the year before her birth. Jacqueline's mother is Janet Norton. Janet is 15 years younger than her groom, who at the time of their wedding was the 37-year-old bachelor, Jack Bouvier. And Jack Bouvier, maybe on paper, looks like the package. He looks a lot like Clark Gable. He's got dark hair. He's very dashing. Jack Bouvier is a fan of the sun lamp as well. He really likes to get tan. This will create Jack's nickname of Black Jack or Jack the Shake. I want you to think swashbuckling pirate Jack Bouvier. Wide lapel suits, paisley ties, his ride as a black mercury convertible. 
Jack is a regular at the 21 Club, a regular in the best seats at boxing at Madison Square Garden, as well as always has a cocktail at the Racket Club. Jack will like to flaunt that the Bouviers are French royalty, which is not necessarily true, but let's make it clear that Jack Bouvier is one tan talker. Also, Jack has told Janet, his future bride, that the Bouvier family is loaded with dollars, which isn't exactly true. There is not fabulous wealth in the Bouvier family. And Janet Norton, who I presume before it all shakes down was sweet and kind and all things good up to this point, will not be after her marriage to Jack Bouvier and throughout the years. Janet turns a little bit into a pariah, but the line of clarity is very easy to understand with how the things that women go through within love and marriage and divorce forms Janet for her future years ahead. Hold on to that. Okay, so 1928. Once Janet marries Jack, she realizes he's not only a liar about the French noble title and all of his connections and all of his money, but Jack Bouvier is also a drunk. He's a really violent drunk at that. Jack will abuse Janet in a variety of ways, even in front of their children, because Jacqueline will have a younger sister in short order. This is Caroline Lee, born in 1933, four years after Jacqueline's birth. Four years later, though, Janet's toughened up a little bit. She is learning how to adjust and deal with the situation that she finds herself in, and Janet begins to fight back. Janet's been known to hurl a few plates and curses right back at her lousy alcoholic of a husband, because whatever money that they did have (laughs) is now gone because of the Depression. It is tough times even for American aristocracy, no matter what level. To add a little bit more insult to injury, poor Janet, Black Jack is not even covering up his infidelity. Doing all kinds of sleeping around, front page news, this is going to burn up Jack and Janet's marriage in 1936 when they do separate. The couple will divorce in 1940. Jacqueline's childhood has not been ideal up to this point. But what is Jacqueline like as a kid? She rides horses. She loves to read. She loves to dance ballet. All very proper, upper crust girl things. Jacqueline has an aptitude for languages. She is in the best schools and all that jazz. And Janet, mama, is going to pick up a new husband in short order. This is Hugh Auchincloss. Hugh is one of the heirs to the Standard Oil fortune. Auchincloss is a name you definitely want to attach to Standard Oil. And the thing that Janet knows now, because of that Auchincloss name, is that money is no longer a problem. From last week, if Rose Kennedy operated under the tenet of preserving the family as an institution, Janet 
For her part, as the other mother-in-law in this situation, her feeling might be preserve the cash. Money is a very big deal factor in Janet's world. This new marriage, though, between Janet and Hugh Auchincloss will bring Jacqueline three step-siblings from Hugh's previous marriages. One of these step-siblings is Gore Vidal. So much coming about him, who our man Nick will meet all the way back post-World War south of the border when he has his affair at with Anais Neen. Oh, it's so much fun. Everything's connected. Back to Jacqueline. Janet and Hugh, once married, do have two children of their own as well. And this marriage, while it does produce two children, has been seen as a very convenient marriage. Janet gets a lot of cash, not a whole lot of love and affection, but the two of them, Janet and Hugh, really do work together well as a partnership. Janet now the mistress of many big deal estates. And Jacqueline proposes the idea of her going to Miss Porter's school. Possibly Jacqueline wants to just get the heck out of Dodge and all of these kids and maybe the years that she's already had with her mother. Jacqueline will go to Miss Porter's and in her senior class yearbook, Jacqueline is acknowledged for her wit her accomplishment as a horsewoman, and her unwillingness to become a housewife. Ain't that the truth? Now, we've talked a little bit about Janet and the imago, the patterns, what she's laying down on her daughter, but let's turn our spyglass over to what Jack Bouvier is doing. Because Janet is not alone in the trauma being descended upon their children. Jack, by all accounts, is devastated after the divorce, and he's determined to still have a relationship with his two daughters, but also he's a little bit of an alcoholic womanizer. Jack Bouvier will keep a room for his girls in his apartment in New York. Jack will come to visit Jacqueline at Miss Porter's, which sounds nice, but dad is really inappropriate. He doesn't hold much back talking to his daughter. He likes to give Jacqueline lessons on the ways of the world about fashion and interior design, but also about the mating game, how to catch a man, how to keep a man. can only imagine the inappropriate conversations, but Jack will tell his daughter, pay attention to everything a man says. Fasten your eyes on him like you are staring into the sun. Be inaccessible, untouchable, mysterious. Once a man possesses you, her father warned, he automatically loses interest. From the time that Jacqueline is old enough to understand what is involved in the mating game, her father is telling her entirely inappropriate things and having conversations that are sexually stimulating. One of Jacqueline's standard stories, which she will hear firsthand from her father, was how he had once misbehaved on his honeymoon with her mother. Janet and Jack had boarded the Aquitania to head over to England, and Jack will slip away from his bride to sleep with tobacco heiress Doris Duke. 
We will be talking about her in future episodes. In addition, on some of those visits when he would come to Miss Porter's, father and daughter would play a game in which Jacqueline would point to the mothers of her classmates and say, that one, daddy? And if Jack Bouvier had not slept with the woman in question, he would reply, not yet. Jacqueline would point to another and ask, that one, daddy? He would say, oh, yes, I've already had her. This is all terrible to our ears today, but it doesn't bother Jacqueline so much that her father is this great rogue. She adores him. Not a word bad can be said against Jack Bouvier, according to his daughter. Jacqueline will make her debut into society the year before she goes to college. She is big in the New York scene. Even the Hearst columnist Igor Cassini calls Jacqueline debutante of the year. Igor is the brother of Oleg Cassini, infamous designer who will have his own relationship with Jacqueline in the coming years. Now it's time for college. Jacqueline will head to Vassar. Here she will meet her future husband, John F. Kennedy, at a party on Long Island. She knows that John Kennedy is a war hero and a playboy and a rising politician. Even his father, Joe Kennedy, had been rumored to be a presidential or vice presidential candidate. But again, that whole bootlegger stock manipulator thing is going to crush those chances for Joe. And people in the circle of the Bouviers with this genteel poverty and the Auchincloss's with absolutely nothing impoverished about them think that the Kennedys are coarse. They're loud. They are as what would be termed in those kind of circles, N-O-K-D, not our kind, dear. Jacqueline is unimpressed. With John F. Kennedy, she has other things to do. Her junior year of college, Jacqueline will spend in France studying at the University of Grenoble as well as the Sorbonne through a program offered by Smith College. And what a year our girl has in France. Let's talk about it. Here Jacqueline is, a young American girl in Paris, having so many adventures. It's a terrific time to be in the city of love, and Jacqueline will fall in love with it all. She's away from her parents, and at this time, the beginning of the 1950s, the city is lousy with socially prominent young men from America. Let's talk about a few of these. George Plimpton, Cass Canfield Jr., also another fella named John Phillips Marquand Jr., and Jacqueline is head over heels in love with John Marquand. John is the son of a best-selling novelist from Boston. John is tall and slim with sandy hair and bright blue eyes. He's totally dreamy. He's Harvard educated and part of the second wave in the military that has liberated Paris. So John Marquand is a war hero too. He is witty, he's handsome, he's smart, he's charming. Jacqueline is enchanted. And John and Jacqueline go to all the clubs together, including Le Elephant Blanc, the White Elephant. Jacqueline drinks grasshoppers and chain smokes French cigarettes, and they spend a lot of time not going all the way. In the fashion of the day, 
It's almost all the way. The French have a term for this, un demi-verge, a half virgin. Until one night that the final line is crossed and Jacqueline is no longer a demi-anything. But she's in love, and this is typical girl stuff. Her senior year is spent at George Washington University, and her parents, Janet and Jack, who have never agreed on anything, certainly have no agreement with what Jacqueline does next. If you're asking why don't they let their daughter decide, I think that's a valid question, but they're not going to do that. So that spring, Vogue does a feature on Jacqueline and her sister Lee, and the world is really hers for the taking. Jacqueline has applied for Vogue's Prix de Paris, which is this contest that Vogue does every year, The winner of this contest gets a trial year as a junior editor in Paris. It is a terrific opportunity for anyone, but especially for a woman in the time where women's options are still quite limited. Jacqueline will apply. She is selected into one of 12 finalists from a candidate pool of almost 1,300. And remember, Jacqueline is in love with John Markland who is also called Jack, too. It's John Jack Markwind. And Jacqueline just wants to get back to Paris. At a photo session for the last of the interviews that take place, Jacqueline is told that the Prix de Paris is hers for the taking. Huzzah! Congratulations, she can be reunited with Jack Marquand again, and happiness will be hers. No. That is not what happens because her parents, Janet and Jack Bouvier, have other plans. See, they have contacted Alan Dulles, who is a good friend of Jacqueline's stepfather, Hugh Auchincloss. And Alan Dulles, who is the deputy director of the CIA, is like, sure, I'll give your kid a job. Jacqueline is given an entry-level post at the CIA. It's unreal, right? Who do you know? So Jacqueline returns to Janet and says to her mother, I'm going to ask Mr. Dulles to let me out of this CIA gig because I'd really like to go to Paris and take advantage of this incredible opportunity that has been handed to me. And Janet is like, nope, you're not going to do it. Janet's a planner and Janet has seen this coming out of her daughter. And so she has made other plans Janet will reveal to her daughter Jacqueline that Jackie will be going back to Europe this summer as a chaperone for her younger sister, Lee. Lee has just graduated from Miss Porter's, and this is going to be Lee's grand tour, and Jacqueline will be her babysitter for it. Once their fantastic summer in Europe concludes, both girls will come home, Lee will begin college, and Jacqueline will report to the CIA for her first day working for Alan Dulles. Jacqueline naturally rebels. No, Mom, I don't know if I'm in for that. I'm going to have to think about it. But Janet is not fooled. Janet will tell her daughter, I know what's on your mind, Jack Marquand. But Jack Marquand is a writer, and writers never have any real money. Need I remind you of that, Jacqueline? There is more to this story, but Jacqueline will take the Vogue gig, but quit after one day. I know. 
The editor of Vogue claims that Jacqueline is worried about her marriage prospects, which I think is kind of a shady cover story. And if my suspicions are correct, Janet has something to do with that too. But alas, after the summer in Paris, Jacqueline is back with the family. She will not report to the CIA. She will instead take a gig as a receptionist at the newspaper, but she wants more challenging work and Jacqueline will talk herself into a $42.50 a week gig called the Inquiring Camera Girl. Jacqueline is taking pictures and doing puff pieces for the paper and feel-good stories, which is going to get us to the spring of 1951, Mother's Day, in fact. There is a house party. Hugh Auchincloss and all of his friends at his lush estate are out shooting pigeons. Jacqueline will ride her horse Sagebrush in the morning and heads on back in for luncheon to get ready. Jacqueline has a dinner party that night that she is hooked in to going to. This is going to be in Georgetown, given by Charles Bartlett and his wife. Charles Bartlett is a correspondent for the Chattanooga Times, and the whole purpose of this dinner party is to reintroduce Jacqueline to John Kennedy. Jacqueline's clothes are laid out on the bed in her third floor bedroom for lunch as well as the dinner party later. Oh, there's also another outfit because Jacqueline has a date to go on after the party at the Bartlett's. Jacqueline has tried to get out of the party, but Martha Buck Bartlett, Charles's wife, is like, no, you get here and leave early if you have to, but you need to be here. And here is where we're going to leave a 21-year-old Jacqueline smoking a Pall Mall on a spring Sunday in May at her family estate with her whole life ahead of her. Now's a terrific time to hear a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back with Jack. See you on the flip. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talk to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talk to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. Oh, investigators, we have talked a little bit about Jack Kennedy, a little more about Joe in other episodes, but good time to mention here, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, born May the 29th, 1917. We're going to work a little backward here. I want to go to the spring of 1951, 
where a six-foot-tall, 150-pound Jack Kennedy would be perfectly happy to stay a bachelor. Jack is a complete and total womanizer. He also has a heap of medical challenges. Maybe Jack's not cut out for the whole marriage thing, but with his father, Joe Kennedy, running things, that is not going to be a proper outcome. Joe Kennedy has told his son that he is now old enough and running for higher offices with an eye on the top job himself, Jack is going to need a perfect Catholic wife. She's got to have the right look, the right breeding, and the right image to go with the image that Joe Kennedy is crafting for his son. Now, you'd think Joe would just realize how lucky he is to be crafting that image and given the opportunity. Since childhood, Jack had been the victim of high fevers, seizures, collapses. His formative years have had many serious illnesses. And Jack, on some level, doesn't want to be seen as physically weak. His family lives in fear that if his medical truth comes out, it will be his undoing for their political plans. Let's add on to that, that any kind of medical challenges will diminish your strength. They undermine you psychologically. And Jack will take a different alter effect to this. He begins to accept that he's not going to live for very long and is going to do a lot of, what do the kids call it these days? YOLO. You only live once. He becomes reckless. How can he defy the odds? How can he seek pleasure at all costs? How can he not ever take himself too seriously? Jack does not expect to live beyond his 40s. In 1947, just a few years before our couple meets again, Jack has collapsed in England. Here he is rushed into a London clinic. He is treated by Sir Daniel Davis. The doctor tells Jack that he has Addison's disease, which is a destructive disease of the adrenal glands. This is the diagnosis all these years later from all of these conditions that have plagued Jack, not just throughout his childhood, but his early adulthood too. 1947 is a very difficult year for Jack Kennedy. His life is touch and go for much of it. Pamela Churchill, who is Winston Churchill's daughter-in-law at the time, will be told by Dr. Davis, that American friend of yours, he hasn't got a year to live. Jack Kennedy does live. And Addison's disease alone is pretty tough, but then add to that a venereal disease diagnosis back from 1940, Jack now has a whole complex regimen of medical treatments. At this time, Jack is being treated with a synthetic substance. The abbreviation for this substance is DOCA. This is administered in the muscles of the thighs and back. Additional cortisone treatments are given, but the combination eventually of additional cortisone and DOCA boost Jack's libido, which increases already extraordinary sex drive. Jack has had a physical revival. Joe Kennedy, again, begins to take his son's political prospects far more seriously. Now, for the first time, 
since Joe Kennedy's death, Jack's older brother, which happened during World War II, Joe Kennedy Sr., Papa, is daring to dream again of a Kennedy in the White House. But we got to get Jack to Washington first. And first up, it's his time in Congress. This is where Jack is. He is working now as a member of the House of Representatives for the 11th District in Massachusetts. We're on a fine spring day in 1951. Jack Kennedy, congressman, will be headed to a dinner party at Charles and Martha Buck Bartlett's home in Georgetown. Okay, so now we get to this dinner party facade. There's a little bit more that you need to know here. Undercover, it's all a setup. Charlie Bartlett is just a pawn of part of a bigger plan. The bigger plan has been set up by Arthur Crock. Arthur Crock at this time is the chief Washington correspondent of the New York Times. And Arthur Crock's wife, Martha, is very good friends with Janet Auchincloss. These women have gotten together and have done a little brewing with some ideas. See, Janet has complained to Martha Crock about Jacqueline and her nonsense and what on earth are we going to do with that girl? Which is actually very minor compared to what Martha's husband, Arthur Crock, is doing. See, Arthur Crock has been called an honorary Kennedy. He's done all kinds of favors for a lot of years for Papa Joe Kennedy. Arthur Crock is a newsman. And Joe Kennedy, who is worth eh, 200 to $400 million now, knows all about the power of the press. Arthur Crock and Joe Kennedy talk every day and have talked every day for 20 plus years. It is in the mid-1930s that Arthur Crock will promote the appointment of Joe Kennedy, again, notorious stock swindler, as the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Arthur Crock will help edit and rewrite Jack Kennedy's senior thesis at Harvard. Arthur Crock will find Jack Kennedy a literary agent, as well as title the subsequent book from that thesis called Why England Slept. Arthur Crock was the ghostwriter for Joe Kennedy's 1936 campaign manifesto on for Roosevelt. And after Joe Kennedy had all but destroyed his political reputation by advocating the appeasement of Nazi Germany, Arthur Crock floats trial balloons in the New York Times on behalf of Joe Kennedy's potential candidacy for the presidential nomination. Arthur Crock has been a pretty big help. <laughs> to Joe and the Kennedy family so far, so why not volunteer to help find a suitable bride for Jack? Here, Arthur will turn to his wife, Martha. Everyone agrees in town that the most eligible young woman is Jacqueline Bouvier, the daughter of Martha's good friend, Janet Auchincloss. However, when Martha goes to Janet, talking about this potential matchup, Janet's kind of a no-go. She thinks the Kennedys are vulgar. Please let me assure you that Janet has not struggled all these years to secure a place for herself in this very Protestant, very wealthy world, only to see one of her daughters go off and marry what she considers to be Irish Catholic riffraff. 
Janet wants for her daughter to have the prestige that comes with marrying into society. Martha Crock understands her friend Janet's aspiration for her daughter, but the society that Janet is pining for really is in some kind of disintegration. The old world, that old white Anglo-Saxon Protestant wasp world, is being swept away. There's a whole new crop of young people emerging. Young, vital, modern men, this is in the words of historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr., were beyond the definitions of class and race and region and religion. We're looking to sort of build a new world. I know, we always are, we always have been. But Jack Kennedy is one of these new kind of guys. Arthur Crock, meanwhile, will continue talking about Jacqueline Bouvier on his daily phone calls with his BFF, Joe Kennedy. She's Catholic, she's beautiful, she's brainy, she exudes upper-class breeding, she's just the right type for the right image that you're looking for for your son Joe, I promise. Joe Kennedy gives Arthur Crock the green light for go, go, go. Now that Arthur Crock and his wife Martha have been given that green light, it does not take long to find their ideal accomplice in this marital plot. This is where Charles Bartlett comes in. Martha Crock had known the Bartlett family back in Lake Forest. This is a wealthy suburb of Chicago. And Charles Bartlett is one of Arthur Crock's protégés in Washington, D.C. Arthur Crock only had to mention the idea of this dinner party, and Charlie Bartlett agrees to give a supper party to introduce Jacqueline Bouvier and Jack Kennedy. So that day at lunch, here we are, Mother's Day, Arthur Crock is seated with Jacqueline at lunch, and, and Jacqueline, knowing that she's going to meet Jack Kennedy that night, says, oh yeah, tell me about him. And Arthur Crock is pouring it on. He's definitely seeking higher office. Jack has been voted the most good-looking in the Senate by all-female correspondents. And wow, have you heard about this television thing? This kid is going places. He's tailor-made for a Senate campaign. He's going to be running against Henry Cabot Lodge. Now, Henry Cabot Lodge certainly has cachet and breeding, but not Kennedy money. All of it's getting laid on really thick. The plan is afoot. Let's get to the dinner party. Holy cats. So the spring day has cooled into a chilly evening, and Jacqueline will take off in her 1947 Black Mercury convertible, and she's the first to arrive at the party. Probably because she wants to get the heck out of there and go on her next date. Other people will show up, though. There's a socialite and accessories editor at Glamour magazine, this poor, poor girl has been invited as a backup in case Jack Kennedy doesn't really like Jacqueline Bouvier too much. Guests do arrive. Jack Kennedy breezes in. He's going to be 34 years old in just a few short days and getting a lot of pressure from his father to proceed with the plan. Charlie Bartlett will hand Jack a drink. Jack will take that drink and sit on down on the couch next to Jacqueline. And Jack, by all accounts, is looking pretty good. 
He's just been down to the family home in Palm Beach, so Jack is tan. But there's something more than that to him. Recalling Gloria Emerson, she will say it was his nonchalance. Add to that his sense of self-entitlement, which you sometimes find among the rich and very beautiful. He expected people to pick up after him, take notes for him, get him tables at restaurants, make sure that he had clean towels. That is a very alluring quality in a man. I might not agree with Gloria Emerson on that one, but let us continue our story. It is on the couch that night that Jack Kennedy realizes that Jacqueline Bouvier has very different qualities than any other girl he has known. Jacqueline is not blatantly sexy like the girls he normally dates, nor is she rowdy or boisterous like his own sisters. Jacqueline is altogether a different kind of girl. Jack will tell a friend later, I've never met anyone like her. She's different from any girl I know. At this dinner party with the Bartlett's, there is talk of Joe McCarthy. Want you to keep in mind here that two of Jack's sisters, both Eunice and Patricia, have dated Joe McCarthy, reinforcing here that Washington, D.C. is a very, very tiny world. So is the strata of players with that kind of cash. Naturally, if it's a good party, you know there's going to be charades. Jack and Jacqueline are placed on different teams. There's some flirting. There's some help across the aisle. Dinner is a complete success, and certainly love is in the air. Hmm. The next day, Jack calls Jacqueline. Oh, he's charming. He's wickedly funny. He will ask her about her college exams. They'll gossip about mutual friends, but Jack does not ask Jacqueline on a date. Jack will tell his friend Langdon Marvin a bit later, I don't want to marry a girl who's an experienced voyager, and I'm not referring to travel on land and sea. I mean, I don't want to marry a girl who's traveled sexually, who's sexually experienced. I want to marry a virgin. So here we have Jack Kennedy lamenting about the kind of girl he needs to find, but few girls really meet up to his demanding and exacting standards. Jack will keep thinking that Jacqueline Bouvier is different, but apparently not so different. And then he never gets the uh, bravado to call Jacqueline again. He is talking to everyone in Washington, D.C. about her, but no contact. And by early October of this year, remember dinner party happened in May, early October, Jack is off on a round-the-world tour to drum up interest in his Senate campaign, It is in part of this tour in Tokyo that Jack, self-treating with the pharmacy that he travels with, will collapse. He will end up with a temperature of 106 degrees. Robert Kennedy, Jack's brother, will call their father, Joe, and say that Jack is not expected to live. All of Joe's father fears are coming true. He thinks it's a repeat of 1947 and all hope is lost. Maybe the lesson here is never count a Kennedy out because Jack Kennedy will recover and return to Washington in early 1952. And it is finally here in February of 1952 that Jack finds his bravado to pick up the phone 
and call Jacqueline Bouvier and ask her out on a date, finally nine months later. Maybe Jack understands that Jacqueline is the package. He'd be lucky to have her. She's perfect for the campaign. Maybe it just takes him that long to get up his nerve that he's going to have to eh, change his ways. <laughs> Jack will take nine months in a life-threatening scare, but our brave boy does pick up the phone. Now, after not speaking to Jacqueline in nine months, Jack is going to pose the idea of, let's go ahead and get drinks. But here, crushing news. Jacqueline Bouvier has some unfortunate things to report, at least for Jack. Because Jacqueline got engaged two weeks ago. <sighs> Too late, Jack. You snooze, you lose. Holy cats. How does this whole affair turn around? Because we do know that Jacqueline Bouvier and Jack Kennedy do get married September 12, 1953. That is where we will pick up our investigation next Monday on Done and Done. Many, many thanks to you all for tuning in and supporting our podcast, for telling your friends, for your kind emails, for your reviews, for your support on Patreon. Y'all are all simply amazing. Until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.